worked in India way back in the early 70s, one of the state governments in India announced its intention to introduce an anti-conversion law. It was aimed primarily against Christian evangelism to prevent people from other religions transferring their allegiance to Christ and his church. However, I recall that one of the older and wiser members of the ruling party strongly cautioned his younger colleagues against such a step. His reasoning was this. If you pass such a bill, experience shows that you will merely succeed in uniting all the Christians together and their church will be strengthened. Leave them alone and past experience will also show that they will fall out and their church will be weakened. Sadly, he was right. For history, church history, does show that problems within the church, issues between Christians are a greater threat to its life and growth than problems outside the community from those who are opponents of the faith. And today, as we continue our series in the Old Testament book of Nehemiah, which we've entitled Restoring the Ruins, we see a clear illustration of this fact as we turn to the story that Robert spoke to the children about, recorded in Nehemiah 5. In his book on Nehemiah, which I commend to you, J.R. Packer, Uh, comments, in Nehemiah chapter 4, the picture was of a community rallying and closing ranks under pressure. Here, however, chapter 5, the picture is of the same community coming apart as it seems because of festering grievances among its members. Or to put it in another way, in chapter 4, the challenge was the enemy out with the walls, Chapter 5, we find the enemy within. So let's read the story in the account, which you'll find in Nehemiah 5, and it's page 489. If you don't have a Bible, do get one from the pews, because we always teach from the Bible, try to follow the Bible through. Just get up and uh, and, uh, reach over or pass one to someone so you can read with me. Nehemiah 5. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their Jewish brothers. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we have to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards, although we're of the same flesh and blood as our countrymen, and though our sons are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind. And then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you're exacting usury from your own countrymen. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have brought back our Jewish brothers who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your brothers only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. So I continued, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God 
to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies. I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain. But let the exacting of usury stop. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves and houses, and also the usury you're charging them, the hundredth part of the money, grain, new wine and oil. We will give it back, they said, and we'll not demand anything more from them. We'll do as you say. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, In this way may God shake out of his house and possessions every man who does not keep this promise. So may such a man be shaken out and emptied. At this the whole assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they promised. Moreover, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, until his 32nd year, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. But the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine. Their assistants also lorded it over the people. But out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. All my men were assembled there for the work. We did not acquire any land. Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me, and every ten days an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In spite of all this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor, because the demands were heavy on these people. Remember me with favor, O oh my God, for all I have done for these people. Well, this is God's word that we're going to look at together. Once again, it's a very relevant passage, as God's word always is. And I want us to look at how the problem that arose, what the nature of it was, and how it was resolved, which will help us, I believe, with the help of the same God, to address and resolve problems that inevitably arise within any Christian church. If you've never come across anything like this in a church to which you've belonged, can I suggest you were either not there very long, or you were a peripheral member. These problems inevitably arise. What we need to know is how to deal with them. So I'm going to share three things, three points, and they all have the word great in them, which is in the text, so we'll turn to that. Okay, we begin with a problem that arose with a great outcry, verses 1 to 5. Verse 1 begins, Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry, against their Jewish brothers. In his book on Nehemiah, Be Determined, Warren Wiersbe writes, In the midst of a great work for a great God, a great cry was heard among the Jews. Let me say the first thing, which is this. It is when things are happening. It is when God is at work within a church or a fellowship that problems arise and issues between Christians are exposed. In fact, it is one sure sign that God is at work in a church when the enemy is also at work. Because the enemy, the devil, does not bother with a dead lion or a dead donkey for that matter. So it is the huge community effort 
of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, which is the catalyst which brings to the surface issues which have been simmering below the surface for some time. And they erupt in a great outcry, not only by the men, but also by their wives, which is significant. In a society where women stayed in the background and never said anything, you would know in this society when the women begin to speak out publicly, you really do have a problem. Quite sure where that is in our society, but if the men begin to speak and the women, pay attention. So, what was the problem that had arisen? Well, the people had been hit by a double whammy. There was a long-term problem in the region of famine. And it's exacerbated when Nehemiah turns up and challenges everyone to get to work on rebuilding the walls. And we see, as Robert explained to children, and you spoke out in your different groups, that there are complaints from three different groups. Look at them quite simply. <clears throat> the first were the work, working poor who had no food. Uh, some were saying, verse 2, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Uh, these people had no land. They were day laborers. They lived from hand to mouth. But now working on the walls without pay, they were unable to buy grain to feed their families. And so they are crying out, give us this day our daily bread. That's the background, even in our Lord's day, of that saying, because many people relied on daily pay so they could buy daily bread. And they weren't the only people with problems. For notice the second group, the landowners, who were having to mortgage their property. Others were saying, verse 3, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. And yet another group struggled with a related problem, the farmers who were struggling to pay their taxes. Still others were saying, verse 4, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Uh, the ruling Persians gained their revenue by imposing taxes on conquered peoples. And the Jewish farmers in these straitened days of famine and rebuilding the walls were struggling to pay their taxes. In another commentary on Nehemiah by Charles Fensham, he writes, the farmers as a result of their involvement in the rebuilding of the walls, could not till their fields properly and consequently had to borrow these commodities to stay alive. Now, if nothing else, this reminds us that the credit crunch is nothing new. But notice that the voices specifically of the people are raised not against the bankers, not against the system, or even the Persian government. Know the complaints by these three groups were directed against their fellow Jews. Verse 1. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their Jewish brothers. As we'll see, the nobles, the leaders of the community, were abusing and exploiting this situation and their Jewish brothers and sisters by lending them money and charging them interest on their loans. And then when they couldn't pay, they took their land. And when they couldn't pay any further, they then even took their children into slavery. So this is their complaint, verse 5. Although we're of the same flesh and blood as our countrymen, though our sons are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we're powerless because our fields and vineyards belong to others. And so with the continued famine, with high prices 
for food. The wall-building project, this godly project, is the straw that breaks the camel's back and produces this great outcry by the men and their wives. Frank Tilpaw comments, What good was it to build a wall if inside the wall there were people who were exploiting one another. And quoting this, the American pastor James Montgomery Boyce writes, we must ask that question again today. And we must ask it of ourselves. What good is it to build great evangelical institutions constructing walls against the evil of our opposing secular world if within the walls the so-called people of God are indistinguishable from those without? What good is it to preserve a separate Christian Identity if Christians behave like unbelievers. To put it in sharp terms, we need to stop calling the church to repent unless we repent ourselves. While the specific issues may be different today, we may not be ripping off our fellow members in Charlotte Chapel, the underlying issue remains the same. Is all well within our church, within this church or whatever church you belong to? Are our relationships with one another open and living? Or are there hidden resentments, unresolved issues below the surface? And at times of crisis, at times of challenge, at times of change, these things erupt. And they're often focused on something practical that seems at odds or even out of proportion to the biggest spiritual issues of the day. And the wise and discerning us, where did that come from? That may not be the real issue. So often there are unresolved issues and relationship issues below the surface. Now let me reiterate again. Such things are not inevitably characteristic of some kind of dead church or an unspiritual community. Uh, think, just for one example, think of the early days of the church in Jerusalem. You know the story. Spirits poured out. 3,000 people converted. Day after day, people being added to the church. Signs and wonders and miracles. Opposition from outside. And the apostles go out praising God that they're counted worthy of suffering for the name of Christ. What happens in the middle of all this? Well, Luke is very honest. God's word is always very honest. He describes what happened next. A problem in the church. Acts chapter 6. In those days when, notice, the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. It may have seemed a very mundane matter. You know, about meal distribution. You know, fancy a church falling out about meals on wheels. I mean... If you've been to church long enough, you'll know these are the kind of issues that divide churches. Below the surface were issues and relationships between different parts of the church, simmering tensions. And unless the issues are resolved, the witness and work of the church will be seriously compromised. The apostles listened to their complaints and sorted it out. And now we see that Nehemiah did the same with the resolution of the situation which centered on verse 7, a large meeting, literally it's the same word in Hebrew, a great assembly. Verse 7, so I called together a large meeting 
to deal with them. Now, it's interesting that Nehemiah, up to this point, seems to have been unaware of the problems in the community. Uh, This may have been partly because he was an outsider coming. He'd lived all his life in Persia. Uh, He probably didn't have any of these kind of problems. He certainly didn't have any of these kind of economic problems himself. He was pretty well off. It it may also be the case, and this often happens with dynamic focused leaders that Nehemiah is so involved, so immersed in the issue of the broken walls of the city that he fails to notice the issue of the broken relationships within the community. But once again, we see, once he does hear the cry of the complainants, notice how he immediately deals with the matter. We can't be sure exactly when this problem arises, but it certainly happened during this 52-day amazing rebuilding project. Perhaps it's halfway through. You always get this, don't you? Burst of enthusiasm, things start, and everybody, you know, gets stuck in and gets involved, and then the enthusiasm begins to fade, and the costs begin to bite, and problems begin to arise. Now, notice what Nehemiah didn't do. He didn't go to the people and say to them, look here, just stop complaining. We're doing a great work for God. You know, this is a peripheral issue. I'll tell you what, we'll put it on the agenda when we've finished everything else. No, despite the threats of enemies around the world, on this one occasion, it appears, during this project, he calls a halt to the work. We're not sure what happened, but probably blew a few trumpets. Everybody is summoned to this great assembly to try and deal with the issue. Now, notice Nehemiah's response when he hears the news and then the action takes. I want to suggest to you it's a considered response. Uh, Notice verse 6. His first reaction when he hears what's been happening is one of anger. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. Some people think this was a wrong reaction on the part of Nehemiah. I believe it was a right reaction. It's what we call righteous anger. When is is anger righteous? Anger is righteous when it is a response to, verse 9, something which is not right. So let me pause and ask you, as a Christian, are there any things that make you angry? Are there any things that stir up within you a feeling of righteous anger because of things that are not right? Or do we just shrug our shoulders and say that's the way of the world? And sadly, sometimes the way of the church. Nehemiah's response was one of righteous anger. But notice he didn't immediately rush into action. Notice before action came reason. Look again at the verse. When I heard their crime and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. Uh, Literally, it says, he reasoned within his heart. He contemplated the matter carefully before taking action. How many disasters would be avoided if we did the same thing, even when we are right, by thinking before leaping into action? However, contemplation finally did lead to action as he speaks out against those who are guilty. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. If you want three R's, 
that may help you in a similar situation, which you inevitably will face at some time. Reaction, reasoning, rebuke. In that order. Now, it couldn't have been an easy step for Nehemiah to take, because he's taking on the leaders of the community. They're the movers and shakers. The ones with influence, and also, they've got a lot of wealth acquired at the benefit of their fellow Jews. Maybe quite a few had sponsored a section of the wall each, you know. Maybe they had one, of, well, they didn't have sponsored things in those days. But you can imagine them saying, hang on a minute, Nehemiah, you better not talk to, uh, to noble so-and-so because uh, you know how much of the wall he's paying for. It's always more difficult to speak out against people who have the power and influence to hurt you or to help you if you keep quiet. Believe me, these are the hardest situations in pastoral work. But Nehemiah fearlessly faces them because he knows these are serious issues. And look again at the specific context. There are two basic accusations he makes against these leaders. Uh, first of all, that they are guilty of breaking the law of God. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you're exacting usury from your own countrymen, charging interest. The law of God, given through Moses to God's people, was absolutely clear that you are not allowed to charge interest on loans to fellow Jews. It's repeated in several places. If you want one reference, here it is. Leviticus 25. If one of your countrymen becomes poor, is unable to support himself among you, help him as you would an alien or a temporary resident, so he can continue to live among you. Do not take interest of any kind from him, but fear your God so that your countrymen may continue to live among you. You must not lend him money at interest or sell him food at a profit. They're clearly breaking God's law. And Nehemiah tackles them on it. It may have been that he tackles them privately at this point. But then getting no response, he calls this big meeting. And he accuses them not only of breaking God's law by charging interest to their fellow Jews, but even more seriously of selling their fellow Jews into slavery. He says, as far as possible, we have bought back our Jewish brothers who've been sold into slavery to the Gentiles. Now they're free, they're back on the market, and you've enslaved them again. You're selling your brothers, only for them to be sold back to us. Again, the law of Moses was crystal clear. You couldn't be in any doubt. This is not some kind of case that a lawyer can argue. It's absolutely clear. Leviticus 25, again, same chapter. If one of your countrymen becomes poor among you, sells himself to you, do not make him work as a slave. He's to be treated as a hired worker or a temporary resident among you. He's to work for you until the year of Jubilee. 50th year, then he and his children are to be released and he'll go back to his own clan to the property of his forefathers. Now, Nehemiah doesn't quote chapter and verse like I've done. He, he didn't need to. I, I needed to tell you because you're not that familiar with Leviticus because we haven't come to it yet. Uh, oh, we have been through it in Leviticus in the Bible in a year. Yes, we have. We're into numbers now, aren't we? Those 300 of us who are going through the Bible. You're reading these long passages with all these strange-seeming laws and names. In our family, we read them out loud. It's quite a struggle sometimes. But, but you think, well, what's that all about? Well, here it is. If you're a Jew, it's God's law. You didn't need to tell them. You didn't say, by the way, you must have forgotten in Leviticus. No, they knew what they were doing was wrong. And they know they're wrong. Verse 8, they kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. So Nehemiah, you know, is struggling here, I think, to get over to these people that what they've done is wrong. 
So he goes beyond action, breaking God's law, to attitude. Here's his second accusation. Failing to fear God. Verse 9. So I continued, what you're doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? See, when you break God's law, it's not some kind of impersonal thing. Like, you know, you, you're going past the speeding camera and you get bleeped, you know, with the... You know from my previous administration, I got done for this once. Uh, and uh, you just say, well, it's just their way of making income. You know, that's the way the government makes a bit more money. It's not very serious. But Nehemiah says, behind God's law is God's character. You're offending God. Don't you walk in the fear of God? Don't you say, if I do this, I'm hurting God. I'm offending his holy character. I'm hurting God. Where I'm treating him with contempt. I'm giving ammunition to our enemies who say, well, they don't really believe that, otherwise they wouldn't do it. So he challenges them, not only about their actions against God, but their attitude towards God, which underlies it. You see, the fear of God is a healthy fear. And when we fail to walk in the fear of God, we bring the honor of God and his name into disrepute among those who don't know God. So having laid these serious charges with no defense from the accused, this huge big meeting, you can imagine Nehemiah laying into these people. They have nothing to say. He calls for radical action. Now notice he begins by making a personal confession. He says, I have my brothers and my men also lending the people money and grain. I'm sure they did it with the best of intentions. And they didn't charge it interest, but they're not helping the problem. They're compounding the economic problem. But now is the time to stop such wrong practices, to put things right. Nehemiah makes a very precise demand. Look at verse 10. But let the exacting of usury stop. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses, and also the usury of charging them the hundredth part of the money, grain, new wine, and oil. For the economists among us who think a hundredth part interest is not very expensive, it's not very uh, demanding, this is probably per month, so you're talking about 12% interest per annum but whatever the amount Nehemiah says it must stop right now there comes a time when you know what God says and you need to stop doing what is wrong this applies to all sin maybe something jumps immediately into your mind that you're doing that is wrong or something you've done to another Christian that is wrong God's word says stop right now Put it right. Maybe it's a word from God for someone here this morning. Maybe more than one. And Nehemiah receives a positive response. We will give it back, they said, verse 12. We'll not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. I guess at this point, Nehemiah is a little worried that they're not going to follow through what they say. So he demands even more that they make a public commitment. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, In this way may God shake out of his house and possessions every man who does not keep this promise. So may such a man be shaken out and emptied. At this the whole assembly said, Amen and praise the Lord. This is a solemn binding commitment before the Lord. Symbolized by the prophetic action of shaking out. It's, it's a 
in those days, turning out the folds of your robes. It's like turning out your pockets and shaking them out and saying, this is what I want God to do to me if I don't keep my word. It is the same that Jesus talked about when he sent out the apostles. He said, people don't accept you. Shake off the dust from your feet. The same kind of symbolic action. And when the people say amen at the end of it, it's not kind of a mumble at the end of a prayer. They are saying, amen, yes, we are giving our agreement. We are signing on the dotted line. We are are publicly saying, we will do it. And it has the desired effect, promise kept, verse 13, and the people did as they had promised. So, before we turn more briefly to our final point, let me ask, are there things you need to put right? Not least, where there are broken relationships within this fellowship or your own fellowship if you're a visitor here this morning. There is a time and place to put things right. I prepared this a week ago because I was away uh, last week speaking and doing various other things and mission work. And I prepared this, and as we were driving up the M1 and M6, which is a tedious business at 70 miles an hour, trying to keep ahead of the people in front of you, I was reflecting on this, and I was reflecting on 17 years of ministry in Charlotte Chapel, and I, I, I always try to apply God's word to myself. And I thought to myself, are there people in Charlotte Chapel, as I come to the end of my ministry, that I need to put things right with? As far as I know my own heart, and the heart is deceitful, as we know, As far as I know, I do not hold any resentments against anyone in this church or has been in this church or any unforgiveness. But, let me say this, you may feel that about me. And you need to put that right. Jesus said, if your brother sins against you, you go and put it right. If I'm unaware of it or if I've done something inadvertently to you, come and talk to me about it. Let's put it right before we move on. Form an orderly queue. I say this in all seriousness. Friends, some of us have never made any progress in the Christian life because there are things and resentments that have halted our Christian walk, made our witness ineffective, that have quenched the spirit and stopped us moving on. I want to move on with a clear conscience before God. You need to as well. But more than that, not because of me or you, but for the sake of Christ's kingdom, for the honor of his church. And I say that in all seriousness. Talk to me as soon as possible. Let's put it right and move forward. Surely the Lord's table is the right place to do this. For confession, repentance, restoration. In in, in fact, Jesus said, before you come, put things right. Uh, Next Sunday evening here in Charlotte Chapel, you have a chance then on Maundy Thursday we meet around the Lord's table. So, let's move on. A great outcry is resolved with a great assembly. And the chapter finishes, and this will be more brief, with a great example. Verses 14 to 9. There are some leaders who lead by exhortation. There are others who lead by example. Nehemiah is a classic example of a godly leader. He tells us how he carried out his duties as governor of Judea for 12 years. And let me just leave with you two marks of a godly leader. In fact, two marks of a godly anything. All right? Which we would all do well to emulate. The first is, give up your rights. We live in a rights culture. If you're a Christian... You live in a culture of relinquishing rights, legitimate rights. Nehemiah was entitled as governor to free food, tax breaks, at the expense of the people, yet he didn't take either. He was entitled, often people would take land and that kind of thing, exploit the people. He didn't take even these legitimate rights. 
He could also have been exempted from the manual work of rolling up his sleeves and getting involved in the world building. I'm the supervisor, I'm the governor. He says, no, I got stuck in with everybody else. Nehemiah gave up his rights. No one could have complained if he'd said, that's what I need, that's what's expected. He was, he was a very unusual governor. But he did it, verse 15, out of reverence for God. You see, they weren't walking in the fear of God. Nehemiah is walking in the fear of God, the God who sees. And when you give up your rights, don't expect anyone to pat you on the head and say, well done, that's a really godly example. Only one sees and knows. Secondly, second mark of a godly leader, go beyond the call of duty. Verses 17 to 18. Instead of being fed by the people or expecting them to provide provisions for his court and many guests, Nehemiah practiced extensive and expensive hospitality, as we see in the list of what it cost him. At his own expense, for all those 12 years that he was governor. Why? Because he recognized, verse 18, the demands were heavy on these people. He put his own needs, their own, he put the needs of others before his own legitimate needs. I wonder, again, as I examine my ministry and as you examine your own life before God, what legitimate rights have I given up? Where have I gone beyond the call of duty? These are the sort of things I said that no one notices. But Nehemiah recognizes that there is one who sees and notices, for he concludes, verse 19, with a prayer. Remember me with favor, O God, for all I have done for these people. He recognizes, and you need to recognize, however you may have been hurt and people have done you in and you've done things that nobody's aware of, there is one who sees and who remembers. And things that happen in secret, God rewards ultimately. Jeff Packer comments, he was not claiming merit but was professing sincerity and serving others for the Lord's sake. His track record enabled him to pray in these terms. Interesting prayer, isn't it? Could you pray that prayer? Lord, remember me for all I've done. We should be able to, because we follow one, the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave up his rights and went far beyond the call of duty. Jesus is the greatest example. We focused on it in those opening verses from Philippians 2. Let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus, who gave up his rights, humbled himself to death, even death on the cross. Here his words to his followers when the, the disciples on the way to Jerusalem, big crisis, what are they doing? Arguing about who's the greatest and who's going to get the best seats in the kingdom. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, give his life a ransom for many that's the great example that we follow that he calls us to follow let me say one final thing in conclusion on a practical and positive note I began by talking about my early days in India uh, first went abroad in 1972 uh, my parents were clearing out their house and the elderly and long retired uh, gave us a, a big package and when I opened it it was every one of my letters I wrote to them every week when I was a missionary uh, I was tempted to throw them on the fire, but then I thought, well, 
Some of them are right there. No, no. <laughs> I read them and it was really interesting. And I was reminded of the challenge in those early days. When I went to Broads Wycliffe Missionary, in those days, nowadays people have to have promised support. We had to have promised support, but it wasn't guaranteed. So every month you'd get this statement of what you had to live on that month. It, was, it really was living by faith. Some months you got a lot. Some months you got little. Sometimes you got gifts from people that you never thought would give you a gift. And quite often you got nothing from people who you thought would have done. And you had to live on that. But I was part of a small team. And this team of people working together, we knew each other well enough so that when our statements came in each month, we would say to one another, how did it go this month? What did you get? person might say, Ooh, good month. How about you? Ah, oh, not so good, but I'm still praying. And you know what we did? We'd quite often just, the ones who got a lot one month would say, ah, hey, no problem. I'll, and just, it wasn't legislation or anything like that. We'd just give gifts to one another so that it sort of equalized itself out. Not perfectly. Not everybody, but it was a wonderful example of sharing together in a practical way. That was a unique situation, but the principle remains the same. A New Testament principle, the book of Acts. So let me leave you with a challenge in these days of credit crunch and increasing unemployment. Are there creative, generous, even sacrificial ways in which we can support and help one another in these days? We have a fellowship fund every communion service where people give money and the elders and the pastoral team who know people who are in need give to those in need. It's, it's, not, it's not done in a public way. If you have needs, do speak to us. We'll, we'll try and help. But the bigger the fund, the more we can give. But maybe we need to do this a little more informally. It's more blessed to give than to receive, said Jesus. Can I say it's also more difficult to receive than to give? I'll leave you with that challenge. And I'll leave you with the challenge of God's word about love in action. Here's John writing. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If you stop there, you'd think, yes, I'm going to lay down my life for you. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Can't be more practical than that. Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with action and in truth. Think about that. Put it into practice. God will bless you. His name will be honored. And people say, I'd like to belong to a community like that. Let's pray together.